body count continues. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23. The day you count on for terror is not over. Friday, the 13th, part two, rated R. Now showing. Check your newspapers for theaters and showtimes. Hello, everyone, and thank you once again for listening to The Pod and the Pendulum, the podcast dedicated to covering every horror franchise, one movie in one episode at a time. I am your host, Mike Snoonian, and I'm once again joined by my host, Jerry Smith. Jerry, how are we doing today? doing great i'm really excited to do this really excited about our guest as well i am too man i am really i mean i think the first um we did in this series went really well so i'm kind of now i think this is when the series really picks up so i really can't wait to hear how today comes out oh so definitely. Jerry, who do I, we I, have with us today Oops, yeah, sorry. yeah uh, sorry uh today we have al white the director of my favorite film of the year starfish uh i would highly recommend every one of you listeners to go and watch that movie. It's just, it's a one-of-a-kind film. So we're definitely excited to have Al here. Al, how are you doing? I am good, man. I'm just so excited to get to talk Jason again because it's been years since I got to do that. So <laughs> thank oh, you for yeah. having me. Oh, no problem. We're excited. Absolutely excited. Um, so Al, you know, I'd like to know, like, whenever we have any guests on, what is it, like, you know, when everyone says, like, yes, I definitely want in on this particular movie, what was it that brought you to the Friday the 13th franchise, and in particular, part two, which we're going to be covering today? So to be honest, like, I got into, uh, I got into horror pretty late, I was like 16 or 17, um, I saw Night of Living Dead, and then I would go down, I'd live, I'd live by myself when I was 17, and I'd go down to a VHS store and just buy an entire franchise, and Friday mm-hmm. the 13th was one of the first ones I bought, uh, Halloween was the first one I bought, and then Friday the 13th was pretty soon after that, and to be honest, I hated it when I first watched it, like the entire franchise, it was just so... It, it just didn't it just seemed really stupid it wasn't like shot very beautifully like there was an elegance to the halloween movies and an imagination to a nightmare movies you know and i really wasn't gelling with friday originally but then as i'd come back to it over the years just to be clear like i still don't think the friday 13th franchise has like a seminal movie like halloween does or, or nightmare does um, and as, but i love the character and the world so much and i love that every single film is completely different from the one that comes before and the one that comes after and that for me is like when i'm watching a horror franchise that's what i want is a constant like pick and mix of different flavors and different sort of visions for it yeah um, i agree with that yeah and two is just the one for me i mean you know we'll, we'll get into it but like two is the one where I, I don't like number one as much as most people do i respect it um but i'm a big jason as a character fan and to yeah again it's not him in his full culmination of what he's going to become but there's something about steve miner's direction in this and the final goal in particular uh, that just really appeals for me so it's a standout for me is probably my favorite in the franchise well it's it's the first film that uh i mean like you said it's not jason kind of how we would come to know him but it's such a good introduction to jason being the main antagonist for the series like there's there's still warts you know they haven't quite like realized what they wanted to do with the character but it's it's such a good beginning i think to that that part of the series yeah definitely yeah it's a really weird thing because obviously after the first movie like 
Jason was you know, this eight-year-old dead kid that popped up in a dream sequence at the end of the movie. And yet, even though he's only on screen for maybe 10 seconds, it was so memorable. And one of the things that really made Friday the 13th stand out that when they decided, like, okay, we want to make a sequel, that pretty much everyone, aside from, you know, Sean Cunningham and Tom Savini, everyone else was on board saying, like, yep, it's got to be Jason. Like, this is where the series is going to go from here. And let's yeah. be clear, it's kind of like Evil Dead 2. Like, this is a sequel which makes absolutely no sense in the canon. And we can all try and, like, fit it in as much as you want, but no. They're just, they're just making it up in a way of, like, well, this is what we think is best now for the series. And I'm mm-hmm. fine, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm very much looking forward trying to, like, pound those, like, square pegs into a round hole today when we're trying to figure <laughs> out luck. exactly where Jason fits in in the whole mythology here. Yeah, yeah, me too. This one's going to be fun, I, I could already tell. I mean, Cunningham hated the idea of Jason being the villain. And I think that the fact that that's where the franchise goes, like really stuck in his craw for some reason, um, all the way to the point where like when he finally gets the rights to the series back um, for part nine, the first thing he tells Adam Marcus is like, okay, you got to get the hockey mask off this guy as soon as possible. And I want as little of Jason in here as possible. Like he just, for whatever reason, could not stand that that's where the franchise went, which is really interesting. That movie that movie, especially Jason Goes to Hell, it just shows how much Sean Cunningham just hated Friday the, th- Friday the 13th general. <laughs> I mean, it's there's no Jason other than the beginning and the very end. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it, I mean, we'll get to that when we get to that episode, but that is one of my most, like, detested sequels of all time. And like, I kind of love it. Uh, do you? For different oh. reasons. I, oh, we're gonna fight. I, I know we're definitely going to, we're going to kickbox over this one. Um <laughs> I was in your camp up until a rewatch recently, and I'm like, I'm completely wrong about this movie. Uh, but, you know, there's some things I can't defend, but we're here to talk about part two. <laughs> sure, because I could totally weigh in on that as well. <laughs> Wait, what? I will definitely weigh in. Weigh Nine, in. Uh, man, like, Nine's the fucking worst. Like, it's just, it it's, but this is the thing. It's fucking terrible, but then I came back to it. I was talking about this on a different show last week because we were talking about Evil Dead. Um, when you see like the roots of some of the script elements of from nine came from this evil dead like idea, it makes it's very weird when you watch it as an evil dead movie and you pretend that Bounty Hunter is actually played by Bruce Campbell, which you know would have been brilliant. It's actually an enjoyable evil dead movie, but watching it as a Jason movie, it's just garbage. Like it's absolute yeah. garbage. It's the yeah. worst. And I think I could see where if like Friday the 13th is someone's one of their favorite franchises where you would get that like there's almost zero Jason in in it until like you said the first five minutes and the last maybe 10 minutes of the movie. But I just think the special effects in it are so good overall and it's really fun. Um, I love everybody that works in the diner. Um, It's just so goofy that it ended up working. It ended up working. But again, we're here today to talk about (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to talk about part two and Sackhead Jason, which won our poll with like 60 something percent of the vote for like the best version of Jason. Like actually Sackhead oh, wow. Jason was what people really, uh, really loved. So that's you know, surprising. Interesting. Yeah. You know? Usually people let, like go for, you know, the Kane Hodder Jason or my favorite is always Ted White. But uh, yeah, yeah, there was a big reception for Sackhead. Uh, yeah. I guess it's just a lot of fans of the town that dreads sundown. 
Yeah. 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 Sad, Roy was in the lead for quite a while at first, too, which I thought was really interesting. See, that, I find that unique, though, because my entire life I have been defending part five and everyone hated Roy growing up. And now it seems like the tide, you know, shifted. Yeah. It's almost it's, like us genre fans can be quite contrary at times. Yes. Oh, <laughs> well, it feels like part five is going to get its Halloween three moment in the next couple of years. Yeah. For some strange reason, um, which I don't know. When we get to that movie, that should be a pretty interesting discussion yeah. overall. Yeah. Uh, and I think I'll need to have like a long hot shower in like a loofah to kind of scrub off after <laughs> watching that again. Um so with part two, you know, obviously the first movie makes like $60 million on a budget of, I don't know, whatever, like they could find between the couch cushions of 10 different homes. Um, you know, it's like a half a million dollar budget and it makes an insane amount of money. Um, so they obviously decide like we need to get another one in the theaters as soon as humanly possible. Uh, Cunningham decides he doesn't want to direct again, like rather than rip off horror movies, he's like, I would rather make, you know, rip offs of family movies. So he decides he's going to part ways, um, with the franchise for over a decade or close to a decade at this point. Tom Savini also thought the idea of Jason as the killer was really stupid. So he's like, I do not want to come back for this movie. And he had already signed on, uh, to work on the burning as well as the prowler, uh, where he would meet joseph zito and they would come back for part four together which is really interesting but savini like basically goes on to do like standout work in both of those mm-hmm. movies i think two phenomenal slashers and the start of hot jason alexander in the burning like if you ever watched seinfeld and were like you know if you ever found like a little pants tent for george costanza like this is where it's coming from when you see him in the burning he's you know what stuff so- just a little side note. You know what is the craziest thing about The Burning? And I love that movie with a passion. But when Screen Factory released that Blu-ray a few years back, the quality of the upgrade was so good mm-hmm. that I had seen The Burning so many times. And there's that scene where they're on the raft. And for some reason, the quality was so good that I just saw Fisher Stevens' balls just hang out. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't revisit The Burning without having like this flashbacks of Fisher Stevens' nuts. <laughs> There's a nut sack right there. Fantastic. <laughs> What's bewildering to me is that Tom Savini was that adamant about it not liking where they're going with Jason. So it's like, no, I'm going to do this other movie where they're literally just ripping off basically yeah. future Jason. Yeah. <laughs> it's so weird. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, but like, good for him. You know, like he knew what he wanted to do. And, you know, he came back and he did standout work in part four. Um, but yeah, like, you know, Jason was the boy that got no love from anybody, didn't get love from his creator, didn't get any love from the camp counselors that let him drown. Um, the only person that seemed to love and insist him was, you know, our old pal Phil Scuderi, the theater chain owner and financier, quote unquote, from Boston, who insisted that Jason be brought back as the main villain. And Scuderi brings back his buddy Ron Curse to write uh, part two. Curse had kind of done like a little rewrite of part one after Victor Miller, added in some more comedic scenes. Um, Though I think if you read uh, the Crystal Lake Memories books, Curse basically says Scuderi would call him on the phone and say, this is what has to go in the movie. And he would just kind of like dictate and adapt whatever Scuderi told him on the phone and just kind of like bring it to the page at that point, which Uh is pretty fun. Yeah, it's it's interesting that the first few movies in the series kind of had that as far as the Scuderi, uh, Scuderi, you know, being that involved, kind of 
calling the shots from behind the scenes. Yep. I always found that pretty interesting. Yeah. Could you imagine this happening now? Like this gradual evolution where it's not till halfway through part three where they really re you know, recognize what the character be and what the formula should be. Like mm -hmm. trying to, if you imagine that now with a big horror franchise coming out where they're just like, yeah, we're just going to figure it out as we go along. You know, it's so wonderful to me that well, that was the era where you could do that and things could grow. Oh, like flex. Yeah, they allowed, they allowed the series uh, to grow back then where these days, you know, and I'm, I'm not dissing any of the, the newer franchises throughout the years because I think they all have their place. But like the, like the Saw films or things like that, where they're they're thinking of three movies in advance when they're making the current one. You know, mm -hmm. like it's, it's very meticulous these days instead of how it was with Friday the 13th, where it feels like, yeah, they were figuring out as as they went along. And it kind of has a its own unique charm, I think, because of that. Which I think is an, an inherent problem with some modern franchises is that yeah they're going in going okay we you know we now have this idea of what can happen with the franchise and how a character becomes so massively iconic and makes so much money that we want to do that from ground zero and that that can leave a bad taste I feel in fans' mouths because they know you're trying so hard like you're just trying to force feed us something and make us fall in love with something. Whereas back in the 80s, you know, they didn't have much money. They could take chances on stuff. They didn't realize yet how much money that formula could end up eventually you know, make. So it was kind of like, you know, yeah, we, we could fall in love with it while the creators were falling in love with it as well. Yeah, it felt oh, like yeah. especially these first few movies, each movie um, was approached like it was going to be the last one. Yeah. You know, they didn't really have a plan for another one in place. So they just kind of said, well, we're just going to make this. And then once the box office receipts came in, it was like, well, I guess we have to do another one because they're too cheap to make and too profitable to not do another one. Mm -hmm. Well, that and the difference between then and now is like these days, every press release I get for a slasher film, it's automatically uh, billing its antagonist, antagonist as like, the new slasher icon. Mm -hmm. Every film that comes out these days tries to make, even the one-off films, tries to make the antagonist like this huge, iconic character. Whereas I feel like the Friday the 13th films didn't start doing that till later in the series. You know, and I, th I think a lot of the slasher franchises in their kind of origins, you know, the genesis of the series, they didn't make those bold claims because they let the film speak for themselves. That's how Jason became iconic. People are returning time and time again to support these films, mm -hmm. not like going right out the gate saying, oh, this is going to be huge. No, I, no. I, I think that's the same with, I, I know we mentioned Saw, but I think the first one with Saw, they, they absolutely didn't realize how big that was going to become. You know, I feel it's from part two where they get that meticulous structure moving forward, you know, and I feel that it's just something that's even at my ridiculously low level, I've had meetings with people where they literally say that it's like, we want a new iconic, you know, slasher character or something like that. And it's like, well, yeah, everybody does. But I feel it's an organic process. It's, it's by accident and magic. It's not something that you can kind of force into creation. What's well, funny yeah. you mentioned Saw. There was the uh, Fangoria convention I went to right ahead of um, Saw 2 coming out. And uh, both Wanel and James Wan were there to talk about Saw 2. And they were very upfront. They're like, look, they just basically gave us producer credits and paid us a pile of money. But we had really little to do with Saw 2. Like, we had no plans for this continuing after the first movie. Uh, we're grateful they you know, want our input and whatnot. But, you know, really, like, it's out of our hands at this point. Like, they were very upfront about saying that, like, after the first movie, like, eh, you know, like, that's all it was supposed to be. 
Yeah, and I do think that's a better way. I think one of the best examples for how it doesn't work is if you look at, and I know the 90s is a bad word for people, but if you look at the 90s and you have someone like Kevin Williamson producing with Jim Gillespie, who directed, you know, I Know What You Did Last Summer, the Venom movie, which they thought was going to be a franchise. And they were like, yeah, we'll make this first one to set him up. And then the second one's where it really gets serious. <laughs> and it just fucking fell apart because the obnoxious kind of balls of them to go no we're going to create a franchise now yeah it just doesn't work well i think uh that approach might work for like films like you know the mcu films because they kind of have that set audience and people care about you know adventure after adventure but i think in this day and age every series and every film kind of aspires to do what marvel's doing Mm -hmm. like especially for franchises they want to set up these big broad tells and it's sometimes you gotta like, I'd hate to use the phrase "pay your dues," but I mean you gotta work towards it. You right. can't just come right in and expect something that big. I and it's you why, can... you... sorry, sorry, Al, you first. No, no, I, was gonna, I think you, I think you're absolutely right, but I think it's splitting the audience. I think the problem is you got like the public audience, which are reactionary in an entirely different way, and then you got the genre fans. And the genre fans, yeah, I think you have to earn their love. You know, you can't just buy it essentially. But I think it's too why you see every. Um, young adult franchise any young adult book with more than say two entries in a series is getting snapped up any com- long-running con- comic book or anything that has more than one storyline that can be adapted is getting snapped up at this point because you know and hollywood just has his eye towards like if we can make three movies at a minimum out of it uh we can you know rake in the bucks at this point and it's not whether or not hey it's just a good story but it's like can we just like throw it out there and Will an audience find it? And I'm a part of the problem because I, I I put money into this stuff because I do love a universe, you know. Mm-hmm. I love the MCU. I love what they're trying to do with the Conjuring universe. I don't think it's working all the time and I didn't mm-hmm. think it through properly. But I fucking love that stuff. Um, so, yeah, I'm definitely part of the problem. <laughs> I mean, it's what Universal wanted to do with the quote-unquote dark universe that got scrapped <laughs> after, like, two movies. They literally wanted to turn, like, Frankenstein, Dracula, and the Mummy into the Avengers for monsters. And it was... Not good. Not no. good. <laughs> no. Well, so. thankfully with that, thankfully that they're, they're kind of like, you know, washing the slate clean and starting over. I mean, Lee Winnell doing The Invisible Man, I, I think is a perfect idea. And just from like the synopsis they released for the film, like it's such a, in, a unique approach as opposed to like this idea that they had with the whole, you know, proposed Dark Universe thing. Like I think Blumhouse kind of kickstarting the Universal Revival thing, I think mm-hmm. is is really good. Oh, yeah, I would agree with that. And I know they still want to get rights to the, you know, the bigger franchises from the 80s like they did with Halloween. Um, in my dream world, they would get, you know, your Freddy Krueger, your Jason Voorhees, and a Chucky and do a revival of the Monster Squad using all 80s icons. <laughs> that would be my ideal movie. And well, that's great. Let like Joe Lynch direct that and just like let the money pour in at that point. Oh yeah, and I mean, and let's be clear: if it wasn't for licensing, just crazy licensing issues, hundred percent, like that's what everyone I feel Blumhouse included want to do. It's like yeah. let's get all these icons, bring them back. Like he's still mm-hmm. for ages, even about nineties ones. You know, he wants to redo and know what he did last summer and scream. Mm-hmm. Just get all these icons and put them all in one universe. Yeah, I am there. <laughs> 
So where is horror at? One of the things I like to do when we kind of look at these movies is look at where horror is at um, the year the movie we're covering comes out. So Friday the 13th Part 2 comes out in 1981, just less than a year after the release of the first movie. And when you look at 1981, it could get a strong nod towards being the best year in horror of the 80s, if not one of the best of all time. So well, I think so. I think so because I was born that year. So naturally, mm-hmm. it has to be the best year around. <laughs> and I am older than you, so it was not in 1975. Was not exactly a banner year for horror, but so to celebrate the birth of Jerry, um, we have just slashers alone. Halloween two, My Bloody Valentine. Happy birthday to me, which still has one of the best posters of all time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. And the burning and the prowler. There. Yeah. Well, hmm? let's not forget student bodies as well. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I've never seen student bodies. Are you serious? I've oh, never really seen bad, it. Man. Watch that tonight. It'll Is that on Shutter? Uh, I don't think so, but I could be wrong. Okay. I need uh, to find it then. Dude, what's in the car if you need to get a copy of that movie? Okay. What's amazing about that film is that it came out that year. Like, I just find that I came to that very late and I was just, my mind was boggled that they were basically doing such a great deconstruction of, I mean, you know, you can hate the movie and a lot of it is trash, but there's some really funny bits in it. But the fact that it was that astutely deconstructing slasher films by 1981, just mm-hmm. crazy. It was, it was very much, I, in my opinion, it's very much the scream of the early 80s. Yeah, Absolutely. That I definitely need to hunt this movie down later on tonight. It's one of those movies I you're aware of, but have never thought to track down. But eighty-one it was like the you, too, right? What's that? So there was the year of the werewolves too, right? You have three werewolf movies. You have Wolfen, which I've never seen. You have oh. Joe Dante's The Howling, um, and my all-time favorite movie in an, an American Werewolf in London. Oh, by my all-time so favorite director. Oh my goodness! I'm a fan of all three of those. Yeah, I've never seen Wolfen. I think I saw The Howling first, and that movie terrified the shit out of me. Um, they used to show that on like local television all the time, um, and that movie just scared the bejesus out of me. But An American Werewolf in London, I think half the reason I'm married to a British woman is Nurse Jenny's accent in that movie. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's half the reason I married a Brit. Well, what, what I love about all three of those is you have three werewolf movies coming out the same year, and all of them are such good examples of how you could tell a similar kind of subgenre filled story, but in completely different approaches. Mm-hmm. I mean, that the Howling is very much like that dirty New York feeling, you know? Yes. Like it's it's grimy and i love it for that american it's the werewolf, maniac of it's the maniac yes, of werewolf movies very much so and american werewolf in london is is very glossy and kind of has that john landis feel you know minus somebody getting murdered and uh <laughs> and wolfen <laughs> wolfen has like just such a really out there unique perspective to it like i mean there's like the point of view of the wolf or it's kind of more of a dog-ish kind of thing but you have the point of view shots that feel almost like predator and like you know you see the predator's point of view and that kind of stuff like wolfen's very unique i i it's it's up there with one of my favorite movies of its kind so again it's a title i need to add to my must see uh Mm -hmm. collection of this book because i've never watched it and i think they're they're very very i think the werewolf genre is the hardest to do in horror Mm -hmm. and i think it's the most underserviced in horror 
And yeah, that year has arguably the three you know best ones, really. Yes. I mean, it's yeah, that's kind yeah, of yeah. That that federal films have always been very hit or miss for me, and they usually fall, unfortunately, in the missed section. But you know, every once in a while, you get like these three movies are or something like Neil Marshall's Dog Soldiers, which oh my god, I think that's probably my favorite werewolf movie of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, when they get it right. Or, I mean, late phases. God, that movie was great. But when they get right, werewolf movies can be really good. But, I mean, for the most part, it just seems like they try to kind of ape off of what's done previously. Right. I think my problem is normally, like, they either fall, like, yeah, for instance, Dog Soldiers, and I'm not popular for this opinion because I love The Descent. is one of my favorite horror films ever. Um, but The Dog Soldiers, I love how the dogs look. Like, I love how the werewolves look. I think that's mm-hmm. fantastic, and I like the simple setup of it. I don't know if it's just me being racist, but there's something about the characters in it that drive me crazy. I can't stand my own people in <laughs> horror movies a lot of the time. Um, and yeah, for me, but then with some like late phases, like the characters worked well for me in that, but then the werewolves didn't, you know. So yeah, I normally find I get one side right and not the other side for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, uh, I, I get to go back and rewatch Dog Soldiers. It's probably been a good, like, I think I watched that right after I watched the Descent, that I remember really enjoying it. And it's kind of like a siege movie, if I remember correctly, right? They're all kind of yeah. pinned down. And, um, it's basically Night of the Living Dead, but with werewolves. And okay. Well, oh, very much so. Definite rewatch then. Um, 81 is giving us the Evil Dead, the first Evil Dead movie. Still one of the scary... Uh, and I love when we think of the Evil Dead, we think of one-liners. But the first Evil Dead just wants to scare the bejesus out of you. Yeah. Um, but you're also getting Scanners and Dead and Buried. And the opening of Dead and Buried gave me nightmares for years after I saw it. Um, I remember that was on like HBO when I was a kid. And I just saw that opening sequence of you know, the photographer trying to like hit on this really beautiful woman and things are going really well. And then he gets tricked and burned alive basically. And I remember seeing that not being able to watch the rest of the movie and getting like bad dreams for like so long after the fact that movie's absolutely terrifying. I love that movie. Mm-hmm. So it's just a crazy good year for horror. And in the middle of that, now we have basically our first real Jason movie. I do want to say you're remiss for mentioning uh, James Cameron's directorial debut was that year Piranha? as well. Yeah, Piranha 2, The Spawning. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's True. funny is I, I saw Piranha 2 growing up before I saw the first one. So when I think of the Piranha movies, like, that's, Spawning is kind of the first one that always comes to mind. Other than, you know, Alexander Aja's films. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so here is our chance to try to make sense of Jason. I don't want to scare anyone, but I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there, some sort of demented creature, surviving in the wilderness, full grown by now. Stalking, stealing what he needs, living off wild animals and vegetation. Some folks claim they've even seen him right in this area. The girl who survived that night at Camp Blood, that Friday the 13th, she claims she saw him. She disappeared two months later, vanished. Blood was everywhere. 
No one knows what happened to her. Legend has it that Jason saw his mother beheaded that night, and that he took his revenge. A revenge that he'll continue to seek if anyone ever enters his wilderness again. Jason. So, yeah, I've got nothing. Because he really okay. shouldn't exist. <laughs> okay. This is Here are my thoughts on the thing. I love Friday the 13th Part 2 with a passion. Uh, I'm in, very much in the in the belief that that's where the film series, that's where the series really kicks off. But mm-hmm. I have such a hard time figuring out that, that opening. Mm-hmm. Because, okay, you know, the roles haven't been established in Part 2 yet. You know, we don't get those till later on. You know, Jason typically stays around Crystal Lake, that kind of stuff. Uh, but in the second one, like, did he take a taxi to where Alice lived? Uh, how did he get Yes, yeah. And, and how did he pay? You know, did the driver have any like moral quandaries about picking up this dude with a sack on his head that you know maybe had a knife or a, or something? Like I, I that opening, I watched it again recently with my wife, and I scratch my head every single time I see the beginning of that movie because there's fan theories saying, oh, you know, it's Elias, it's Jason's dad. Uh, you know, there's all these different theories, but I just can't grasp a single one of them. Do they clarify geographically where she is? They never do. I don't think so, but I would I would think that she moved pretty far away from Crystal Lake at that point. I would not think that she's staying near Crystal Lake after everything went, that went down. Because it wasn't like she was from there. Because in part one, I remember um, Steve says to Alice, well, if you don't like it here, you can leave. You know, give us a week. And if you don't like it, go back to New York at that point. So I didn't take it that she was from anywhere near Crystal Lake. Yeah, so the idea of Jason just taking a cab. And he's carrying his mother's severed head, which even if you... Yeah, if you put it in a satchel, it's still going to be pretty stinky. So did this this take place... uh, Because obviously the film's a year later. Does this take place a year later, or is this... Because they mention it, don't they, when they're doing the campfire kind of story later. Uh, Well, yeah, talk about it. It skips ahead, I think, from the opening scene to the campfire stuff in the beginning of two. I think it skips ahead a few years in between that. I think it's like five years. Yeah, I think it's five years from the opening sequence to when they try to open the camp down from Crystal Lake. Okay, but so this opening sequence could be any sort of. We're not sure like how far ahead it is from the ending of the first film. Because I feel like Jason's definitely a walker. So all I'm saying. This if he had a good month, he, he could hike down to New York and do some how good did he, How did he hunt down where Alice lived? Like, this is pre-Google. Like, is she in the white pages? Like, I don't like, quite... He's you know, like the, the shark in Jaws. He's just got, like, a prenatal way of, like, a sonar. Following somebody to the Bahamas. like in yeah, the forest. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, That's I think good. we're just supposed to accept the fact that, like, maybe Jason didn't die in part one, um, but the mother... Th- for whatever reason, thought he was dead. And she was just, you know, a wackadoo that even though he was right there this whole time, she kept saying, he's dead, he's dead. And, yeah. you know, now well, he's like this I understand that, but at the same time, Jason would have had to find his mom's head. There was a crime scene at the end of the first one, so mm-hmm. then did they just never recover her head and Jason did? So th- does that mean Jason was watching the events of the whole first film of his mom killing people? Like, Sounds what was like doing? what they're trying to say, yeah. Because like he died in 1956 when he was like 8 to 10 years old or whatever. And then the first one's 24 years after that. So he would be in his what, mid-30s. And he was, yeah, just apparently watching everything happen without interfering. 
<laughs> and then so, snuck in to steal his mum's head and got out. What's funny is by that, like, by that form of thinking, like, he was in his mid-30s. So by, I don't know, by 2009's film, mm-hmm. 2009's film, like, he's older than what Michael Myers was in the new Halloween. Mm-hmm. Like, Jason's, what, like, pushing, what, 70? He well, would 2009's be. not canon, though, is it? Uh, well, it's a whole new movie, I think. I think it yeah. just does away with all the others at that point. Well, the screenwriters, the screenwriters have recently said that they wrote it as a sequel. But I mean, I, really? I, 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 yeah, <laughs> and it's like I can't really get on board with that. Get in their own graves, like this is yeah. just don't say that. <laughs> I, I think that's yeah. what everyone does with the series. Unfortunately, <laughs> they have their own ideas of the continuity and the timeline. But this is the thing; it makes absolutely no sense. But I fucking love this opening. Yeah, song. it's so much fun. It's great, and I guess Alice, you know, was was supposed to be a bigger part of the movie, but uh, whether it was money or Adrian King has said that she had a stalker around this time and had kind of started to rethink whether she wanted to do movies at all. Like she is only in it for this phenomenal open opening sequence. Well, I can understand. To be honest, I can understand why she would have a stalker at that time. I mean, when, like we mentioned on the previous episode, when the first movie came out, Siskel pretty much spoiled it. gave gave uh, uh, you know the address to uh, uh, what's her name Betsy Plays, Palmer. Yeah, gave Betsy Palmer's home address away. Like th- like this was a time where there wasn't that kind of shield from you know the public when it comes to people that are. You know, obviously, Tom Cruise and people of that stature, you know, they're protected. But, like, these little horror actors, I mean, Daniel Harris had a stalker for years as well. Uh-huh. Seems like this genre is the one that attracts, obviously, crazy people. Some interesting people. Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, there's loving, you know, there's, like, loving the people in these movies and then sifting through their garbage cans, trying to find if they've discarded any, you know, lean cuisines and dirty underwear, which some people tend to do. <laughs> oh, like, lean cuisines, wow. And, yeah, not Hungry Man, specifically lean cuisines. No, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, and, you know... Even growing up, I had the understanding that, hey, if someone survives one of these movies, they probably won't make it through the next mm-hmm. one. I got that. But to this day, it bums me out every single time that Alice just... I mean, you go through a whole journey with the character, this whole arc of a character in a film, and then, oh, she just gets a nice pick in her temple in the first yep. 10 minutes. But, but what I love about it is, like, they do keep... Her character feels like her character, which I think is great. Yeah. And that's what me makes it more impactful. Like, coming off of something like... Like thinking of someone like uh, was it was it Rachel from Halloween Four when you yeah. so she's this great character in that and then you see her at the beginning of Halloween Five and she's a completely different character she's just playing a bimbo right. in the opening sequence before they dispatch her you know right uh, so it's yeah. really I think that's why it works in this is like one he's Steve Martin is stealing a lot more from Halloween here like even like the kids feet walking into Jason and stuff mm-hmm. like it's it's a lot more elegant storytelling I find in the first film and then yeah the character feels the same so you do feel that loss when she goes which I yeah. really think is great. And it's a great reveal, too, because you have the jump scare with the cat and you think, all right, things are going to be okay now. And then as soon as she opens that refrigerator and there's Pamela Voorhees head, it's such a fucked up, uh, creepy moment. Like not only is Jason going to kill her, but he's letting her know exactly why she's getting killed right in the moment before she gets the ice pick through the temple. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's setting up. Uh, his victim in a way that maybe he doesn't do as much in the later films. I mean, it's it's almost like 
pranking her in the in the way that Michael Myers does a lot in, mm-hmm. in Halloween films. Like Michael Myers really enjoys just fucking with people. Whereas Jason in the later films, I mean, you come into contact with him, he's just gonna chop your head off. Right. right you know? Yeah. He's that always playing of. that he's always playing that line I feel between is he a Michael Myers or is he more of a leather face? Mm-hmm. And in this he's definitely more of a Michael Myers, which for mm-hmm. me I, I personally prefer. Plus, we learn in this an important fact, which is that he's very polite and takes the kettle off of the stove, which I think is nice. I love that moment. <laughs> yep. Thank you for mentioning that, because I love that moment where he's like, you just think before he heads back on the Greyhound bus, he's going to have a spot of tea. <laughs> well, he doesn't want to mess things up for the, the owner of, of the house, you know? Yeah, it's like, not that He doesn't want to do damage, you know? So... He'll kill. He'll kill its resident, but he'll you know take the the teapot off so it won't burn down. <laughs> Do you think the cat makes it out alive? Yeah. Yeah. I don't see. That's the thing. I think eating animals is more of Michael Myers' deal. I mean, Jason just. <laughs> yeah. I, I think Jason would do it if he's hunting to eat to live, but he's not gonna mm-hmm. like. He's not just gonna kill something for the hell of it. Even if if he doesn't have his bow and arrow like the yeah. 2009. <laughs> I think Jason's more of like a campfire, you know, roasting hot dogs kind of person. Because if he takes a if he takes a taxi to New York, you know, he's obviously going to go to the uh, the Whole Foods and buy some good good stuff. Some <laughs> smalls. Yeah. And he has his own, like you know, he's also very environmentally conscious. He can take off the sack he's wearing on his head, and he can put all his groceries in there. So he doesn't yeah. contribute any waste to plastic whatsoever. You know, it's. Yeah, I, I really one hole in it. Yeah. Our listeners already hate us on this episode. They must. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yes, yeah, go ahead. You first. No, I was just going to say, uh, getting back on track. Sorry, guys. It's been a week. Uh, getting back on track. I mean, it, it. Jason shouldn't be who he is in the second one based off the first one, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, that's kind of where I always lean towards the idea that the end of the first one was more of a dream sequence. Mm-hmm. I, don't think, I don't think Jason was in that water. I think Jason was... Kind of, you know, maybe cutting an apple in his yeah. little shack than the first one. And, you know, because in the first one, I mean, he's, he's you know, basically that flashback of that drowned kid. You know, he yeah. jumps out and that's that's pretty much it. There's really no explanation of it other than that. No, the ending, the ending of the first one, I think, is 100% a dream sequence. But if you want to, if you really want to work hard and make it all, you know, canon together, then it can be like her projecting the fact that he's still alive but because she's been told the story of him as a kid that's the only way she can hmm. imagine him you know see that i is... think i'm on board with that yeah i like that one so i think this is the only movie too where you get a little bit of empathy for jason too because when you think about what he's doing like he's basically he's for at least from the time that he kills alice to five years later when the new campers come in um he's pretty much left to his own devices in that kind of homemade shack that he set up you know living off the land he's kind of just really a survivalist and it's not until a whole new group of campers come in that he gets back to killing people um even alice's death you can kind of justify it because if he did see Alice kill his mother, like the one person in his life wife that he loved, um, you can kind of get the reason why he would go after her and, you know, not that it justifies it, but you have a little bit of understanding of to why he kill her. And if Jason was just kind of left alone, um, None of this ever would have happened at that point. But as soon as someone kind of comes into what I would say he calls his territory, his kind of predatory instincts kick in at that point. 
Well, I feel like that's where the series uh, has always suffered is when they move out of that kind of mindset. I, it, to me, the best Jason films are always the ones where Jason is kind of, you know, quote unquote, like protecting his environment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Al, Al mentioned that, you know, Friday 13th films always play kind of like walking this line of whether it's a Michael Myers or a Leatherface thing. And I think in two, it's kind of a good combination of both mm-hmm. because that first Texas Chainsaw film, I, I don't really consider Leatherface a villain. Like no. he's just, you know, it, these people are coming into his house. These people are coming into that thing. And yeah, obviously don't chainsaw people up and eat them for barbecue because that's not cool. But uh, in the second one, Jason only goes after those people because they're basically invading where he lives. And that's the only place he knows since right. childhood. And the last time that a big group of people came into that area, his mother died. So he's probably exactly. a little bit afraid. Oh, most definitely. And uh, I just think it's it's really interesting. It's it's a really interesting story to follow, I think, in the second one. Because, I mean, we have an idea from the beginning that it's Jason. It doesn't quite say it, but, I mean, who else would it be, you know, that would bring the mom's head? I, mm-hmm. Unless it's, like, another surprise character that happens to pop up out of nowhere like the first one. But, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to follow the character in, like you said, that one kind of empathy-filled sequel. You know, this is the one where it's 100% Jason going after the people for coming on his territory. You know, it is in the future sequels too, but not as much as the second one in my opinion. Right. And it's 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 fun to get on board with that. Because I, I also feel like not just Jason, but the film's protagonists are really great in the second film. I mean, Jenny is, I think, one of the best characters in the whole franchise. Yes. Yeah, I think she's one of the best final girls, period, to be honest. Uh, but I think why Jason works so well, and I think there are different roads to the same place. You know, you have like the, the form of thinking where people think you need to be sympathetic, which you, I think Jason's the most sympathetic, iconic, you know, uh, villain in horror ever really other than if you're going back to like frankenstein or some frankenstein's monster or something like that but um but yeah there are people who like having that back history so it's like nightmare we understand where he's from we understand his rules you know um and the same with jason for sure and i like when you prescribe to that and then there's a john carpenter feeling before obviously they introduce thorn and sisters and all that shit um with michael myers is just a force of nature and you're not meant to understand why they're doing what they're doing or why they're targeting you or anything like that you know um, and I think they're two different roads that can still lead to an iconic character that essentially, you know, Jason and Freddy and Hal and Michael Myers, they're comic book characters. That's what they eventually end up becoming mm-hmm. is these mm-hmm. comic book characters, but in really violent comic book films where you can root in the best versions of these films. You can root for the protagonist, but you can also root for the villain. Um, and with Freddy, that's always been a bit sticky for me because he's, his history is not that sympathetic, I feel. Right. Whereas Jason, yeah, it's 100% sympathetic. And that's, that makes it so easy to root for either side. And in t- part two, yeah, Jason is at a very sympathetic point given this weird history that they're giving him. And then, yeah, introduce the characters like Ginny who have you know, some sensibility about them. They're not just, you know, like cartoon characters doing stupid things. I think it works really well. Well, in in the Friday Thirteenth series, especially, I think the later films, it's so hard to really care about any of the protagonist characters because they're yeah. they're just very one dimensional, and it's it's always kind of the Jason game. You know, you want to see what Jason's gonna do. But part two and part four, especially, I I feel like those are the two films in the entire series where you have the characters that just feel real and accurate. I mean, part four, I've always said if you take you know, take Jason out of it, it'll be a really great coming-of-age film. And I think, too, mm-hmm. kind of has that feeling as well. 
I mean, it's it also features a final girl that isn't your typical final girl. And I mean, I don't mean that in any disrespect towards any other characters, but I mean, Jenny's very, very smart. You know, uh, you know, she's a psychology major. You know, like she yeah. she uses manipulation and she uses psychology to one up Jason. Like you don't really see that very often. You know, later on, you're basically seeing you know people with telepathic powers. You know, doing power lines against Jason. Like it's it's odd. But yeah. I mean, with Jenny, with Jenny, you have a very well written, well acted, just all around really good character, like a really good opponent for Jason. And she feels like just like a real. I mean, I think a lot of these actors are, are close to being age appropriate, which is great. Um, so they feel more vulnerable and more like they're actually, you know, teenagers heading into their early twenties. Um, and Jenny, she, I mean, she's not a virginal, uh, virginal, sorry, character. You know, she's definitely having sex. You know, and mm-hmm. she's definitely got a lot of like already got a lot of experience with different parts of life, whether it is from trauma to yeah, sexuality to whatever. Um, and I think that's something that they would increasingly push away from which makes for less interesting characters. And I think one of the many things that really works for Ginny is the fact that she's so uh, multidimensional. She isn't a flat character. And I think in a lot of these films, when you come across, you know, your main protagonist, they have to always be the badass. And I've always hated that. I want a character that will rise against, you know, whatever adversity that they're facing in their antagonist. But also at the same time, be someone that I could relate to because I know everyone likes to play it tough. But I know that if Jason was coming after me and I was under the bed, I would probably piss my pants too. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that seems that fantastic. Is, I, I think that that's one of the best scenes in any slasher film because yeah. it shows that vulnerability and it shows that this character who's using every single thing in her power, whether it's mentally or physically, to try to figure a way to survive, that's the moment where. You can tell they're not okay by this. Like, they're really fighting tooth and nail. You know, they know that that killer's in the room with them. And that's the scariest spot ever, you know? And and she pees her pants. And, you know, like, I saw it in the uh, theater a long time ago. And it's like the audience was laughing. And it's just like, I've never found that funny at all. In fact, that's pretty scary. I would agree with that, yeah. There's there's honesty in that scene. There's there's a lot of honesty, and I think that makes the film so much like more enjoyable than it already was. Yeah, no, I think that scene's fantastic for her, and I think it's fantastically directed. My only problem with that scene is the extra ten percent when Jason falls off a chair, um, which, <laughs> which is funny for sure. Well, <laughs> but I, everything else around it. See, I love clumsy Jason in parts. <laughs> Like he is not on top of his game, and oh, no, I adds, that adds to the charm of the film. Because <laughs> later on, later on, you know, Jason would like just run through doors, and you know, he'd, he'd throw Rob through the window in part four. Yeah. You know, he's just a mean guy. This one, Jason's trying to outsmart someone, but he falls off a chair. The oh, it's insane. And then the look on his face when she does. Sorry, we're jumping up, but the look on his face when she pulls a chainsaw on him is just hilarious. <laughs> Even <laughs> his fighting, his fighting when he's fighting Paul. Like, it's so just scrappy and just all over the place that, like, Jason's taking swings. <laughs> it's like a brawl, like with Jason Voorhees. And I think a lot of people forget that. Like, before before he's, you know, hitting Julius's head off with one punch in right. Jason's Manhattan, like, he was falling off chairs trying to full-on have fisticuffs with Paul in part two. Yeah. Like, well, I, I think- feel like he was really influenced by, like, Sugar Ray Leonard in part two. <laughs> 
I think if I were going to, if somebody was going to write a slasher movie in 2019 and they wanted to know, like, what do we need to, what do we need to do to develop characters? I would have them go back and actually watch the first two Friday the 13th movies, not because they're the deepest characters in the world, not because of the most fully developed, but because as an audience member, you grow to like them for their little quirks and their foibles and they feel like real people um, before they're all killed off. And I think what ends up happening somewhere along the way, I'm trying to think about part seven for a moment. And I want to say it's the character of Melissa, who's the real bitchy character in that movie. Um, Somewhere along the way, writers started to write every character like they were Melissa, the character that you hated. Like, Or Mm -hmm. if every character was James Spader's character in Pretty in Pink um, and then made put into a slasher movie, like you could not wait for that person to get killed. Um, And that doesn't necessarily make for good storytelling because I don't want to root for the villain when I watch these movies. I want people to escape and I want people – I might like the villain and I might enjoy – watching them go to work but i don't want them to be my rooting interest i don't want to root for evil i want to root for characters that i like and in part one no good and part one and part two i like these characters a lot and they feel like i would have been young back then but they felt like the neighbors that i had like the kids that babysat me that's who these kids remind me of growing up well, I, I I want to be scared by the characters, and I, mm-hmm. I love the Hall series, and I love all that stuff, and I love you know most horror franchises, which is why I was very excited to do this show. But unfortunately, what happens in a lot of them is you get to the point where the characters are just so just bland that you find yourself rooting for the killers, and when mm-hmm. you really stop and think about it, like I don't want to root for a pedophile that was burned alive by right. parents. You know, like, I don't want that. Growing up, I was enamored by Nightmare on Elm Street. But as, you know, 38 years old with multiple kids, like, I kind of feel weird about the whole era where there was, like, a hotline, where there was a pull-string Freddy, and I owned it. But, uh, you know, like, that's odd to me. I like the first few Friday the 13th movies because I'm still scared by the idea of Jason. You know, you have these likable kids coming to his turf, and you know that he's coming after them. Mm-hmm. But you don't want them to die. I mean. Two of my favorite deaths from the entire series is Rob's death in part four, which I think is the most heartbreaking death in the entire series. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is killed in the basement and he's screaming, oh, he's killing me. He's killing me. Like, it's sad to watch. Right. Or like, the podcasters dying in the new Halloween. Those were the deaths that really bummed me out because, mm-hmm. like, that guy's basically watching his partner get murdered and he can't do anything about it because he's right. dying, too. Where part two, Mark's death. The guy's in a wheelchair just trying to do his best, you know, and man, he just got laid and he comes about to get laid. He's about about to. I mean, about to. He goes outside and bam, hatchet to the face. He falls down. He falls down the stairs. You care about these characters. You don't want them to die. Whereas in the later films, I can't think of a single character in part eight that I didn't want to die. Right. I I wanted to hit that girl in the face with the guitar. Yeah. What I love about Mark in this movie, too, is they never play Mark for pity. They never well, they... play Mark off like, oh, poor dude in a wheelchair. He's super strong, for one. Um, he's very confident, and he's basically from the moment that – is, is it Vicky the one? Is Vicky the one that is the one who really yeah. – 
once and like from the moment vicky lays eyes on him she's like i need that d like absolutely like this is it's not a pity lay she is throwing herself at him and it's awesome like you know i think That's if you made that now it would be a pity there's thing. no tires the entire movie mark is like the essence of suave in that movie and no they don't play him they don't play up you know oh it's the handicapped character they mm-hmm. play him like a normal character because he is you know what i mean like i hate i hate when films have to do that and i feel like in some ways as much as i just adore the texas chainsaw massacre i mean that first film i think is one of the most important films in history i do feel like they do get kind of exploitative a little bit when they approach franklin but mark it the fact that he's in a wheelchair it never comes into play as far as a hindrance to the character and i i think that that's really good writing and that's a really good direction by steve minor and I, and I think what makes it even what makes it really frustrating is, from my opinion, at least to be clear, I'm not going to say like this is incredible writing. Like Friday the 13th Part 2 does not have incredible writing or anything. But the fact that it's just that tiny, tiny change that makes it that much better. Like it's it's just that understanding of no, all these characters, like you say, Mark would normally be stereotyped in a way. Like look at Scott, who were introduced at the beginning of the film by slingshotting a girl in hot pants, but and then stepping out from the bushes with maybe the most ridiculous look in his express yes. face I've ever seen in my life. Like it's insanely hilarious. And he would normally in any film after this, he would be like, Oh, he's the fucking asshole. Because he's too handsome and he's just like womanizing and like being a dick and he'd be bullying people. And he's not. He's actually like you see him in that scene later when he's dancing with the dog. Like you might still not like him for whatever reason, but he's not an asshole oh. or anything, you know? And it's just that tiny, tiny, tiny extra dialing of load. All these characters have to be either relatable or likable or sympathetic. And it's such a simple thing that should be in every movie. Oh, definitely. I, I, I agree with you 100%. Right. Like, there are those little quirks where the characters could have very well been those stereotypical, you know, this is the jerk. This is, you know, the slut. This is the pure one. This is all this stuff. I feel like Friday the 13th, like, they set those characters up to where you think that that's what's going to happen, but it never goes into that territory. It, like, every character has their flaws, has, you know, their, their quirks in a positive way, and that makes them feel that much more realistic to me. It does. No, that's – and I would – to your point about, about Mark, Mark would be the character in the 2009 remake who owns the cabin and is a dick the whole time in the movie. And they never give him a single likable moment in that movie, and therefore you can't wait for him to die. Where here, there's that bit of tension. Like when he's hung upside down, um, there's that bit of tension. Like, ooh, is he going to get out of this at this point, or is he a goner? And you feel like you know the answer. He's going to be a goner. But you're kind of rooting for him to hold on hold on just for a little bit longer and i don't think you get that nowadays uh one way this movie does kind of subvert slasher tropes is not every character in this movie ends up getting killed um it's a pretty large cast you have about 16 campers all together and about half of them take off midway through the movie oh, to go to disappear yeah to go to the honky tonk dive bar in the middle of new jersey or connecticut or wherever you get this like honky tonk bar and they're like all their friends are getting killed and yeah. they're like downing shots at the bar which is kind which, of awesome which people love to read messaging like again one of my favorite quotes is john carpenter saying oh we never intended it to be if you were pure then you would survive from halloween that wasn't something we were you know co- coherently thinking up um people love to read into this stuff the, the message of this movie then is if you stay out with your friends getting fucked up you're gonna live to find yeah. another day <laughs> oh. 
So was if you that... ever want to survive a slasher movie, find your little honky tonk dive bar and drink some Jägermeister till you can't you know, walk. I, I always had this idea that Stu Charno's character that goes drinking with them and stays there is still in that bar. <laughs> yeah. That should be the sequel out. they do. They just right. go back to that bar and they're all still there. Like, do the, they do the Blumhouse Halloween thing, but it's just Stu Charno's character coming out of the bar like really old. old. It was it's a long old. night. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. I would watch that. Beautiful. Um, so, Al, you had mentioned um, Steve Miner's direction a little bit earlier, and I would say that this movie is a big step above overall. Uh, some of the sequences you get, like that opening set piece we talked about with the reveal of the head, um, Mark's death in the wheelchair uh, when he gets that machete to the face, and then you get that beautiful shot uh, from behind of the wheelchair just clanging all the way down the stairwell it's so mean but it's such a great moment um things like that that just weren't part of the first movie um i love little touches like that here in friday the 13th part two yeah i'm actually i'm a bit of a sorry no no go ahead go ahead as i'm a bit of a steve minor apologist to be honest like i'm i i'm not going to claim he's a great director or anything but he just every now and then has enough interesting ideas and i do think he has something to say you know not always but it pokes through every now and then like i'm kind of uh, forever young <laughs> no i'm my father the hero um i'm i'm one of those rare the i mean i enjoy bits of like placid and i'm one of the rare people who i have to whisper it who loves h2o but like i can there's just he has a character in his voice whether you like it or not he at least is trying to say something and there's a lot of slasher films where i feel the director doesn't have anything they're trying to say other than to hopefully make a competent movie. Right. Um, whereas for better or better or worse, he has a voice and he's using it here, I think, for the first time properly. And I, and I really love it. And I think no, he I... has his own voice, but he also keeps the look of the first movie, which I think makes it a more cohesive story, which does make it better. I yeah. think that Steve Miner's contribution to the second one is, is a huge one. I mean, I appreciate the first film and I appreciate it more after the last episode we recorded because Justin Beam really made me reevaluate that movie mm -hmm. but as far as the second one it's the first friday the 13th film that actually scares me still like there's that scene where jenny's in you know the the house or the, the cabin i mean and you see jason run through that window that is one of the scariest shots in any horror film of all time as far as Absolutely. i'm concerned because you because, know something that she doesn't know in that moment and it makes it so much scarier because now you're waiting for that reveal i also feel like uh I feel like that was kind of the change between the strangers and the strangers pray at night for me. The mm -hmm. first film, the first film, very of uh, strangers, very much felt like a very terrifying film of you know what's out there coming for these people, but it's a matter of when it's going to happen, you know. Whereas mm -hmm. the second strangers film, I mean, it, it, they kind of made those characters, those realistic characters, into kind of a Jason Voorhees thing, where like, oh, you know, you get beat up, you get set on fire, everything else, you're still ticking. And I feel like that's what happened to the Friday the 13th films as they went on, um, especially mm -hmm. with the especially with the zombie era, Jason, uh, which I mean, I always get a lot of crap for because I don't really care for it that much. Mm -hmm. I, th I think six is the last film that I actually love with a passion. But uh, these first few ones, I mean, you kind of feel like Jason is a real person. You know, you don't feel like he's like come back from the dead. You know, he hasn't been struck by lightning, you know, with maggots falling off of him. 
You know, it's it, and that adds to the fear, that adds to the tension, and that adds to how terrifying I think that second film is. But I, I, think, I would argue that I think he could, uh, if Steve Miner had come in and directed, say, for instance, Part Seven, which I completely hear what you're saying, and you know, we're, they're in very different eras of Jason. Um, I, I do love the look of Jason in Part Seven a lot. Like I like that sort of skeletal form. But I feel if he had come in and directed something like that, I still think he would have brought that to a whole different place because it's even like in the editing here, like just cutting from like the dog at Jason's feet and then you cut to them roasting hot dogs, you know, on the yeah. barbecue. They're just, there's, again, it's stupid, but there's thought going into it, you know? And a lot of the time with these movies, it isn't that kind of thought. Um, I think uh, that even, uh, and I won't get too far into it because we'll talk about it the next episode, but I even feel like that was kind of a mistake with the third film is that it didn't have that meticulous planning, I think. Like it was more concerned... Even Steve Miner's uh, uh, contribution, I think it was more concerned with, okay, we needed the shot to be perfect to, you know, really complement the 3D aspect. Right. Whereas the second film didn't really have any gimmicks that they were trying to, you know, keep in mind. So I think Steve Miner just really went for broke as far as trying to give fans of the first film a film that maybe kind of gave the same feeling of the first film, but amped it up in pre- basically any form. And it's a great place to be in. Can you imagine, like, if you're a director, Friday the 13th has come out, it's made, you know, tons of money, becoming a phenomenon pretty quick. But again, they don't know what it is yet. You're in an era where those expectations aren't necessarily on you. So, like, to be able to come into something like this and go, oh, we get to build from something, but also we can go our own way with it, you know? Like, and you can really feel he's excited about that opportunity. And I also think that, uh, I mean... Obviously, the the first film score is iconic, and I think everything that Manfredini did for the film just works. I'm not a big fr- fan of like the Fred Mullen era as far as the soundtrack, mm-hmm. but I also think that Manfredini is just at his best with the second one. Like I listen to that soundtrack when I'm writing, like almost at least once or twice a week. Uh, you know, I usually put on the disco theme of the third one just to make my kids laugh, but. <laughs> Like, yeah, we were eating uh, dinner last night. I cooked spaghetti, and my kids, it was kind of like a somber night just because it's been an interesting week for my family. But uh, it was kind of gloomy, and then we were all just sitting at the dinner table eating spaghetti, and then under the table I put on the Friday 13th 3 theme just to lighten the mood, and it, it was impossible not to smile at that. Right. You know, as The second film, I mean, man, I just, I, I nothing but great things to say about Manfredini's score. Like, it's so good, and it's so terrifying. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. What do we think of the Jason portrayal in this movie? Now, there's two people playing Jason throughout it. There uh, is, was it Gillington? Well, I'm gonna, you know what? I'm going to butcher this right now. So Warrington Gillette was originally hired to play Jason, which I cannot think of a more waspy name for a person to play Jason Voorhees. Like, that is just... Should not be, but he was hired. He told people he could do the stunts. He had some training. And by all understanding, like after his first scene, he couldn't do it. Yeah, he took all the credit for a lot of the stuff that Steve Dash ended up doing. And mm-hmm. and I, I think Steve Dash doesn't get enough recognition for his, his contributions to Friday 13th Part 2. Because, I mean, the majority of the scenes with Jason is Steve Dash. Right. You know, you have, you know, Warrington uh, Gillette busting through the window and i think that's a very very great shot in the second film i mean he's he does some things but i think when it comes down to who played jason in the second one my my opinion always goes to steve dash and i i, I think that sackhead jason i think it's so much fun to watch mm-hmm. 
I think a reason I love Sackhead Jason so much is you get that you only see that one eye through the um, hole in the sack, but it's a human eye in this one. And you see a lot of expression and a lot of emoting and you can see the wheels turn like that scene in his shed at the end of the movie when uh, Ginny is dressed like his mother and she's, you know, trying to basically subdue him. You can see the wheels turning in his head. Like it's a really good performance overall. And you can, you know, you know, there's more going on there. You, you, what you see in Jason in the second film is fear. He's frightened by Ginny at the end. He's scared. He's reduced to that scared little boy who just wanted his mom. And that's something we don't really get to see very often in the series. I mean, even from the third one on, you know, when the the, the main protagonist in the third one basically says that Jason tried to rape her, which I have a huge problem with that right. scene. But, I mean, Jason, even from the third one on, has a very calculative kind of like angry thing to him especially mm-hmm. in the kane hodder era i mean yeah. kane hodder just wants to rip shit up yeah and he does kane hodder is jason is basically every pissed off suburban dad that the kids won't get off his lawn or turn down their stereo yeah. or kane hodder's jason as much as i love kane and i dude it's one of the nicest guys in in just existence uh, you know in person as much as i love that kane hodder's jason always reminded me of those bros that ride those lifted trucks, you know, that, that drink monster energy drinks and, you know, listen to yeah. Chevelle. Just I, always like, the, everything. I always thought on the, on the flip side of that, I always felt like there's definitely a part of, you know, as, as a genre fan myself, who was someone who was bullied a lot in school, like he was just, that's the embodiment of what you wanted to be and what you felt like you wanted to do when you were a teenager, which all those people who are bullying you, all those girls who are teasing you and mocking you and stuff. And he's just that terrible, unhealthy expression of that, just uh, going through butchering them all. I could see that. Whereas Steve Dash's portrayal of Jason, he's very much that kid that had to pretty much grow up by himself in that shack. You know? He's angry and he's protecting his environment, but at the same time, he's scared because all all that he wants is his mom. And that's like, uh, I'll probably be the only person in existence that will uh, uh, compare Friday the 13th Part 2 to Hereditary. (laughs) Uh, The the many times... Yeah. Interesting comparison. The many times that I saw Hereditary in the theater, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I guess, uh, I found the audience kept laughing, or laughing, I added a T to that, uh, kept laughing at the idea of the son crying when all this stuff got really intense in Hereditary. Are you kidding me? Funny. No, it was crazy. cinemas that you're seeing things in? What's happening? What theater (laughs) is this? I never want to go to this theater. The Central Valley of California is the worst. Uh, but yeah, these people were laughing and it was just like, how can you laugh at that? This kid is bawling because all that he wants is his mom. And I think that that's like such a relatable thing. Like, you know, as, as human beings at some point growing up, this, all we want is approval and protection from our parents. And I think that's where Pamela Voorhees and the character succeeds. You know, she went about it obviously in a very unhealthy way, but the fact is she was just trying to protect her son in the memory and she was angry. She just projected it on the wrong people. She should have projected it on herself. Right. Whereas the second one, Jason does the same thing too. He's hurting because he saw his mom killed, but he doesn't realize that his mom was the villain. And Jason yeah. is scared when Ginny basically one-ups him. It's mm-hmm. it's I love seeing that side of Jason. 
for, for me, the biggest accolade really I can give to this film, it's similar to me with like Infinity War, like which is a different comparison, I guess you wouldn't normally make for this movie. But Infinity War for me is on paper everything that I don't like about Marvel Comics. It's like I'm not interested in space, I'm not interested in seeing 64 characters, I like much more insular stories, much more relatable ground level stuff. But I just fucking love that movie because they pull it off so well. And with Friday 13th Part 2, I'm kind of on the opposite side of you, Jerry. Like, I, as much as I like things always feel more grounded from slasher films, I do love the comic book side of it. And I do love when we get to, like, powerful zombie kind of Jason. Mm-hmm. But the films just aren't as good. The protagonists aren't as good. They're not as right. well made or constructed. And here, this film, again, I'm not going to say it's a masterpiece or anything, because I still don't think there's a seminal film in this franchise. But it's so much better put together uh, than so many of the other films in this franchise that it's my favorite one despite the fact for me that so it's th- backhead Jason like I would love this to be the Jason that you know it's more relatable to me as a character for the series I like that the fact that the Friday the 13th series they either succeed or fail on the entries that try to do something different yeah part two part two tried to do something very different than the first film and it succeeds Part six had a very tongue-in-cheek approach, and I think it succeeds. Whereas Jason goes to hell, and to a lot of people, Jason well, X. That was different. I, <laughs> I think Jason X has a charm to it, and it's pretty fun, and it's silly as hell, but I, I still enjoy it. Whereas Jason goes to hell, it just doesn't feel like the film series. It doesn't feel like the franchise that we've been in love with for years. You know, it just doesn't. It doesn't. It lacks that. Right. Fr- well, fr- fr- again, fr- it's. It, it's made by people who clearly don't want to make something that you're in love right. with already. They want to, they want to give you a middle finger basically. It's, 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 it's kind of the same feeling as I get. And I know there are people who defend it, but I'm sorry, I can't be one of those. It's basically summing Michael Myers up into two very awful, uh, explanations. One, a senior citizen cult and two, Michael Myers kills his family because he's a pissed off, long haired Kiss fan that doesn't get to go trick or treating. Like, I just, that isn't the character that I love. Whereas, like, the later Jason films, it's like, I, I want to see different takes on it, but I don't want it to stray so far from the source material that it just doesn't feel like that's what I'm watching anymore. I think sometimes there's this idea that as a creator or a director, that you so have to put your own stamp on a character or on a movie. Um, to make it your own that you lose sight of what makes the character work and you lose sight of what makes the audience love that character Um, especially when you're eight or nine movies into a franchise like you were with friday the 13th it's like no i'm gonna do something different because i know the material better than these people that come and spend their money every year on it and i'll show them and it invariably it always ends in failure at that point i think I think that's what I love so much about uh, David Gordon Green's Halloween film. It's like it's the 11th movie in the series, and there's an infinite amount of possibilities of where they could go in a bad way. And, you know, and I've read some of the scripts and I've read some of the pitches for, for you know, what could have been. And I'm, it's very different in a bad way. Uh, but I liked the new film because it was the 11th film in the series, yet it felt the closest to the first movie for me. You know, like mm-hmm. everyone tries to do their own spin. And I feel like the, the the 2018 Halloween kind of did its own thing at the same time being very faithful to what we loved about the original one. And I, I fair, like 
I, because, I feel like here we have a sequel which is definitely already doing its own thing you know yeah. like there are some tonal things here which are carrying on from the first one but it's definitely like doing a bit of a u-turn into a new kind of dawn for this franchise well i think in a lot of ways i think the franchise in my opinion starts with the second one yeah uh, i i like the first film as its own kind of movie but as far as the Friday the 13th that i'm in love with it starts from two so I, I kind of feel I kind of hold the rest of the sequels to Friday the Thirteenth Part Two instead of the first one. Makes no, sense. I agree, but I'm just saying. There, I know people who must prefer the first one over this one. One of them lives in my house, um, and and for them, they see this like I think it's just too subjective. You know, it's like for them, this is already that change in personality, and they wish that they had stuck yeah. with how it was originally. Really, uh, that's such an interesting uh opinion like i'd really like to hear about that because where could they have went with with a sequel to the first one that would basically stayed with that i agree but i think that's the inherent problem like with any horror sequel i think it's almost it's almost insurmountable like it really is because logic has to go out the window at some point yeah and you're gonna be pissing off one of your group of you know of fans for whatever reason they attached to that original film um so i think it's so inherently difficult and you do then have to get again like that's why I get asked a lot now what's my favorite franchise for horror and I do go to Friday 13th a lot but with that caveat of I think it's kind of one of the worst but I enjoy that each film does have that different flavor to it like I really I love that about the about this franchise no I I I love uh whereas the continuity in the Texas Chainsaw films really drive me crazy like I love I love uh the first three movies of that series a lot but I mean they're obviously very fractured as far as continuity i see that is a hindrance to that series to me whereas i kind of like the idea of every friday 13th movie feeling somewhat different and having you know that different stamp but i also feel like it's important to kind of play in the same sandbox so to speak you know what i mean yeah no no i do i like like for me there are franchises that on yeah on the show i do like we avoid certain franchises just because they have repeating you know even directors for instance like the wrong turn franchise could be so much fun if it wasn't for the fact that four of them are done by the same director. Right. I think it's four. Oh, yeah, I mean, obviously the second one's the best, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I, Wrong Turn Two is like one of my, what's weird is Wrong Turn Two and Joyride Three are two of my favorite horror films. Joyride Three, man, I love Joyride One so much. I really. Uh, <laughs> it's great, but Three is just like batshit insane with the one-liners. Yeah, and I love Wrong Turn 2 with Henry Rollins playing like a drill sergeant. It's so good. Yeah, but look, um, look at that compared to the first Wrong Turn. It's, it's a fucking completely different movie. They're yeah. just geographically in a similar space. You know? yeah, they, they go from like psychological, you know, with Wrong Turn, the first one, yeah. into like Joe making a full-on just splatter movie with the second mm-hmm. one. It's, it's interesting. And Al, you would say like how there's no seminal movie in Friday the 13th, and you're right. And I think I used this comparison in the first episode is like it's like kind of going – like Friday the 13th is like to me like going to In-N-Out Burger or Five Guys Burgers where (laughs) – you know, I'm not getting the greatest cheeseburger in the world, but I'm getting a really good one, and it's going to be the same every single time. So I know that I'm always going to like it. Uh, whereas, you know, you can you look at a series like Halloween, which I love, but the disparity in quality between, say, Halloween 1 and Resurrection, it's like they don't even exist in the same universe at that point. Well, it's, it's like a caricature of what it was. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I do I, I agree with you and i hear what you're saying but i do also feel like we use this example when uh had some friends who's getting into friday 13th and we had the fun of going from part two to part six 
mm-hmm. and even just that jump is mind blowing. Like absolutely, oh. like what mm-hmm. happened? Like okay. it's just well, insane. Well, there's even like a, a huge tonal shift between five and six. Like yeah. it almost feels like it's a different series. Right. Well, like five you, is porno, basically. Yeah, yeah, it's very sleazy, <laughs> sleazy, like something that you feel like like William Lustig would have made in part five. Right. And then you have you have six that is like. In, in a lot of ways this horror comedy like it's yeah. it's a very funny movie whereas like if you watch part two then you watch part six like it, it's it's a head scratching jump but i mean more just the quality of the film not uh, so much yeah, the direction right. it heads in but in terms of just watchability like halloween resurrection is unwatchable like no one like if i've watched if, it twice in my life i can't oh, do it like, like i have if, the box and I go through them all, but I always skip that one. It's, I've it's always skipped Resurrection. This, like this if, is the beauty of the world, guys. Like when I was doing a festival tour last year, and I will not say people's names because they legitimately stopped talking to me after I kind of brought this up without naming them still publicly on something. But I met someone who very passionately Halloween Resurrection was their favorite Halloween movie. Yeah, that person needs to get help. <laughs> that person should call somebody. They're, they're not well. No, like, I'm such a believer that art is subjective. And I I love those takes. I love it. Because one of my favorite horror journalists, uh, Anya Stanley, uh, she will fight to the death about Halloween 6. And I can't stand that movie, but I love reading every single tweet or article that she writes on that. Because it's it's not about any irony. It's a genuine appreciation for that. So when I hear about someone that, like, will love like Halloween Resurrection or Jason Goes to Hell. I don't agree at all, but I will read and he- listen to every single take on that because it's so interesting to hear why that movie works for someone. No, I think someone I, I like that. Anya Stanley writes about Halloween 6 in a way that's really intelligent and you can see the point of view and it makes me go back and critically reevaluate that movie. But I just feel like if someone were to come to me and say like Halloween Resurrection is the best in the franchise, that would be the last person I would see before I die. Basically, that's how I would feel about that person. Yeah. Is Anya talking theatrical or producers come? Oh, uh, I think the producers cut of Halloween Six is the more watchable one, just because mm-hmm. it's absurdity. Okay. I mean, I, I still want to start a band called Paul Rudd and His Magical Runes. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> like it's the the producers cut is so weird that I could watch it and I would I don't appreciate it at all, but I could watch it and just be entertained. Like, what am I watching? Whereas the theatrical of Halloween Six, I remember I, I watched it opening night, nineteen ninety five. And I was just so confused by what I watched. Like that mm-hmm. the reshot ending where they're like Jason gets beat up by the oh, pipe. Yeah, no. It's fluid. It's that and like it's such a slap to the face of how to give a proper send off to Dr. Loomis. God, like yeah. you can tell by Halloween six, like they hated Dr. Loomis. Yeah. Whereas he's even batshit insane in part five, but like he's always, he was always my favorite character in the first movie. This is my problem. I think I'm becoming a terrible person the older I get because I've always enjoyed just subjectivity. And I think it's a very freeing thing when you're a creative as well as because it means, you know, that we have enough people on the planet now. If you can find that demographic, they're going to like or hate whatever you've done, you know, yeah. which I think is kind of reassuring. However, I do feel <laughs> I, I increasingly feel that there's kind of two separate ways to divulge that stuff. One is objectivity where I can look at a film objectively and go, I don't like this film personally. 
but I can see objectively it's incredibly well made, like the acting was great, blah, 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 you know, so I appreciate that. Um, and then a film that I might love, but I can tell objectively isn't good. And so with something like Resurrection or Halloween 6 or something, it's one of those things where I would hope people could be like, look, objectively, these are bad. But subjectively, I really enjoy it for these reasons, you know? Mm-hmm. No, exactly. And I, I appreciate that stuff. Uh, but I, I haven't found anyone to date that really hates uh, Friday the 13th Part 2. Because, I mean, I, I feel like it's it's such a solid sequel and not even just a sequel but it's just a solid film in general like like you said it's not you know game changing it's not like a you know cinematic classic but it's also in very in a lot of ways i think an important film in the whole history of slasher films Mm -hmm. yeah and it just it winds so so well like i love like the pacing of it i think you get Mm -hmm. like just enough time with the characters you get like some interesting little directing decisions which i really like like just, just a few, but even like when the girl—I've forgotten her name—but the girl, yeah, who wants to have sex with Mark, and she's going to get ready, and she's she's like changing into her brown panties for mm-hmm. some reason, which I don't really understand. <laughs> and then runs to her car outside. The camera stays inside the hut, and then like pans across from where she was inside to like through the window. And there's just these lovely sort of these lovely little moments in it that just make you feel more like you're in the place, you know, which I really appreciate. One of the moments that I wish was in the movie that's not is the extended death of Jeff and Sandra. Um, I remember when I was researching this episode and reading about their death, it's one of the things that got caught by the uh, MPAA, and part of it was just how horrific it was. And that when, you know, this is the death with a spear goes through both of them as they're having sex. And, and the way it's originally scripted and the way it was originally shot was Sandra sees Jason coming. And she's trying to, and she's horrified. She gets this look of terror on her face, and she's trying to push Jeff off of her so she can get away, but she's completely, she's not strong enough to do it. And um, they both get speared at that point. And it's one of those moments that I would love to have seen. Oh, that sounds great. That actually done, because it's such a, that's a terror. I think that that's one of the scarier things is when you see something coming, but there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, isn't that like the typical white American male uh, issue that you know if that that sums it up. Uh, Sandra sees danger. She tries to get him off of her, but he's way too busy like yep. focusing on his own wants and needs. <laughs> he's like, in the pound, He's white, going to pound town. A hundred percent. Like Jesus. Yeah. Uh, no, there's there's a lot. And uh, speaking of Sandra, I mean that's my one of my favorite things. And God, I hate always referencing part four because what am I going to have to say when part four's episode comes up? But I, I love the fact that it's connected where Rob, you know, Rob Dyer, the character that's kind of hunting Jason, that's Sandra's brother. Mm-hmm. Like he's very like the events of two very much play a huge part in four. So like, I, I also feel also feel like four kind of helps flesh out the character of Sandra more than we even get in the second film. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's interesting that, and it's also interesting the death scene. I mean, it's very you know publicly been stated that it's pretty much lifting off of Twitch of the Death Nerve. Yeah, and, you know that great a uh, great uh, Giallo film. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot there's a lot to pay attention to in the second film. Uh, not just the characters or the deaths, but I everything from the score to like we said Steve Miner stuff. Uh, even even the stuff that you said was written, but it wasn't filmed. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's such a rich history. You know, as far as production, the film itself, and it, you know, its impact. That I, 
I feel like later in the, the series, it doesn't quite hold that same kind of rich history as the second one. Again, it's agree. like you feel like everybody, everyone still cares and is trying really hard, you know. I feel like everyone had something to prove. Like when you're yeah, saying the score earlier, I did mean, mean to mention one of the things I love in it is that he's using the cello for Jason and then the violins mm-hmm. for Jenny. So like whenever you're like, whenever she stops moving, just the cello goes. And then as soon as she gets up again, like that split second, the violins will come in. Right. And it's so sub, like subliminal in the movie, but it really just helps ramp up that tension throughout like the end finale. Um, and well, it's just all these little moments, you know, that people care about. Well, everything from what you just said. I mean, Manfredini, when he when he approached the Friday the 13th series, he approached it in ways that I feel like weren't approached later on by, you know, Fred Mullen and, and the other people involved. And no disrespect to them. But like you said, Manfredini used various instruments to kind of define the characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, how iconic, how iconic is the, you know, thing you know he that he came up with and even that kind of tells the story yeah oh absolutely it's a spoiler throughout the entire first movie it's such a great example of how important a good score is to a film and a lot of times in horror films especially these days it's mostly people trying to like recreate you know carpenter's halloween theme or something like that they try to come up with their their own take on that for their film whereas i feel like the friday 13th films the music was important to the actual character development. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I think that it's just a perfect ingredient, you know, and, you know, like Al says, you know, the films aren't, you know, going to change the world. They're not like classic kind of stuff, but at the same time, like, I feel like there's so much, so many ingredients in the Friday 13th films that you kind of don't get in a lot of other series. There is. I think there's a real effort. I think it's, again, they don't have a lot of money to make these movies, They but they had a built-in audience for it, and everybody was just getting their start. Like, this is Steve Miner's first chance to direct a movie, so obviously he's going to do everything he can because he's going to want to get that next gig overall, uh, and he does add to it overall. I had a few stray bits left before we wrap up. Do you guys have a few moments for that? Yeah, I'm yeah, done. of course, of course. How do we feel about the final jump scare in this movie with Jason coming through the window? How does that compare to part ones? I, I think it's, I think it's better. No, uh, better. I think it's better. Uh, uh, just for me. I'm not saying, you know, I don't speak for everyone else, but just in a nostalgia, kind of a nostalgic kind of mm-hmm. sense. Uh, I saw the second film before I saw the first. Same and, here. There isn't a single moment in the entire series that scared the hell out of me as a kid as much as when Jason pops through that window mm. in slow motion and grabs her. You know, you get the close up on his face that you hadn't you you haven't seen that you know before. It's very different than the look of Jason in the first film, yeah. But it's such a scary moment. And I don't know you know, I don't know why it still freaks me out every time I watch it, because you know what's coming, but it's just the way it's shot and with the combination of the way it's shot, uh, with the the design of Jason's look, with the score. I mean, I I think it's just amazing. I love it. I think it's like yeah, like you said, it depends what order you come to these films in. Because I think it's actually more organic in this one, the scare. But the problem is, by this point, you're expecting that scare, you know. So I think it's it, yeah, I can understand. It's not as iconic. It's not as effective. But I I agree with you. Like I prefer it. I wish the film ended right here at this second. I don't need that mm-hmm. extra little bit afterwards. Um, I think you should have that shock and get out again. But um, but yeah, I, I, I love as well that they, because he takes his, his bag off earlier and you don't get to see his face. Right, and I love yeah. that frustration. 
and you think, oh, you're going to go out without seeing it. And I respect that. I kind of love that in, in horror films. I like never seeing the character's face. But in the, at the end here, they just say, no, just take a good, long, slow motion look at it. You know? <laughs> That's fucking cool. And I love the reveal of the face. I would say in each movie, one of the things I look forward to the most is the reveal of the makeup for Jason in each one. I think that's one of the things that I always look forward to more than anything else. And I wouldn't say that this scare is quite as effective as the one in part one. In parts, I don't think you have that really tense buildup to it like you do um, where it almost goes on too long in the first one and you kind of feel like, all right, time to go. Um, But I do think it's really well orchestrated. I love how it's done. And I do like that makeup look overall because it looks like a more you know, from where the character would go even in part three and part four before you even get to zombie. Jason, this still looks a bit more human, just kind of like a mutant overall. Um, But I think it's really, I think it's pretty great. Is Paul dead or is he alive? Is Paul dead or is he, did he make it through? I always, I always thought he's he's dead. I mean, I've kind of connected, it's probably not his eye, but as a kid, I always thought it was his eye at the beginning of the third one, you Mm -hmm. know, that the crazy guy's holding up to the camera. Uh, you know, like he's nowhere to be found. You know, when when they're willing or off. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no explanation. So I yeah. that and wasn't the original in the original script or I thought of it is when they close up on Miss Voorhees' face. Did, didn't she blink in like one of the original drafts or something? Yes, like that? she was gonna blink and smile. I think they even <laughs> shot that too, but it just they decided it looked too goofy. Well, I mean, it seems like it would have looked goofy, but I mean, I I also I feel like. Good. That, yeah, I also feel like maybe that would have been like a little wink to like, Haha. you know, because she's asking him where Paul is, and all of a sudden, yeah. you know, Mister his winks. So it's a little too crypt keeper at that point. Yeah, 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 I agree. Sorry, just one thing I did mean to touch on earlier, which is only a tiny thing, but like in that big scene we're talking about, where he falls off a chair and she pees herself and all that fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's actually a really important part. I don't know if in slasher history because Diallo had done this stuff before, but but at least with American horror, like it's a point where we're with our protagonist the whole time and then in that scene is where she's disappeared and we're suddenly not aware of where our lead character is anymore and instead we're following jason as he's looking Mm. for her and i feel that's the beginning of that baton getting passed over you know which from episode three and onwards is going to be increasingly no we're going to spend a lot of alone time with jason and that's the very first time it happens oh yeah definitely i agree so ultimately, what is how up uh, Halloween two? What is Friday the thirteenth? <laughs> what is Friday the thirteenth part two's legacy? Because I actually reason I said Halloween two, I actually have it here in my notes. Like Friday the thirteenth part one and two actually affect Halloween two's production. Uh, when Rick Ray- Rosenthal first directed Halloween two, he very much wanted to do what John Carpenter did and create a much more suspenseful movie and not something that would have been a slasher that we came to know in 1980 and 1981. And once the Friday the 13th movies in particular come out, Carpenter looks at the first cut of Halloween 2 and says, this isn't scary. Like, if we release this right now, it's going to be laughed out of theaters. And he actually goes back and he starts adding a lot more blood and a lot more gore to Halloween 2 where his which I think is kind of ironic because there's so little like if Halloween came out now if you just cut out the nudity you have a PG-13 movie it's still pretty damn effective PG-13 movie, but you have not a very gory graphic movie. And now Carpenter felt like you needed that if you were going to be successful because of Friday, the Friday the 13th series. And they really like the beginning of Halloween too 
it's very close to the beginning of Friday the 13th Part 2. Like, mm-hmm. they really get into a similar, uh, yeah, state of Michael walking around and following him from place to place, which I also feel they then replicate again with, like, the beginning of Scream 3 with Cotton Weary's girlfriend. That's almost identical to Friday the 13th Part 2. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I feel like the Friday the 13th series, as far as... Uh for American audiences kind of helped kickstart that kind of era of very big Savini kind of effects, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, they, they had done it in like Giallo films or a lot of, you know, European films in general prior to that. But as far as like the whole video nasty era, when it comes to America, I feel like we had the Friday the 13th films to kind of help steward us into that era. So I, I do feel like the Friday the 13th films are important in, in the sense that, they helped pave the way to a lot of other uh, films and franchises in general in this, in the way that Halloween kind of made it possible for Friday the 13th to exist. Friday the 13th made it possible for a lot of other future films to exist because of that. That's, I would say, 100%. Yeah, it's the success of these two movies that really let so many slasher movies, and you see so many set, like in campsites, for example, that's why you see so many of these come out of the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And Friday the Part Two, even though it wasn't as successful as the first one, um, on a budget of a little bit over a million, it still does twenty-one million, which it doesn't sound like a lot, but if we're looking at that, would have been a hundred and twenty million dollars now. Well, it's kind of like what happened with uh, the first Insidious. I mean, I my numbers might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that was like what a million and a half movie, and didn't that make mm-hmm. like ninety, ninety-five million dollars? It made yeah. a crazy amount of money. Yeah, it's insane. Like. It, people might not say that Friday Thirteenth Two, like it's, it wasn't as successful. But if you start out with a million point two five and you make twenty one, that's you've, just about twenty times your budget. Like you've that's done something right. Well, this is exactly. the problem. I think everyone always looks at box office, and box office really doesn't matter. What matters is your return, and the return on investment is much more fascinating. And it's always horror films, by the way. When you look at return mm-hmm. on investment lists, it's, it's almost it, almost one hundred percent horror films. Absolutely. Um, I would 100% agree. So I feel like I feel like Friday Thirteenth Two is one of the films in the series that has such a lasting impression, and I say that with all the love in the world for the rest of the films. But Two is kind of like I said at the beginning of this episode. Two, in my opinion, is where it kicks off, where it really starts. And we do have so many films in the series that do a good job. I mean, Part Four is my one of my five favorite films of all time in any and any genre not just horror part part four is just it for me but two i think is the most important film in the series i really do without part two you're not going to get to part four if part two did not do well if they didn't go in this direction you wouldn't get to part four let alone part nine ten eleven twelve well, maybe you guys will answer this next week, but I'm always interested for people, because there is a jump anyway from one to two that, you know, includes some logic out the window. Um, yeah, how would you feel, like, you know, disregarding how we might feel personally about part two, if part three had been part two? You know, if they had come straight in with a Jason, he gets his mask halfway through that next episode, do you think that would have changed much? I honestly, I don't think this series would have been as effective or successful, because I feel like... I feel like that kind of that sequel, the part two where they it still had its warts and all. You know, it wasn't perfect. Jason falls off of stuff. He was clumsy as fuck, but but it's part of its charm. You know, it, it was it was a good movie to get fans 
kind of latched onto the series in a way that the first one maybe didn't. Like they gave us a character that we were really enthralled by. Me personally, I wouldn't have cared to see another movie about yeah. Mrs. Voorhees if she had lived. I, it just it just didn't do it for me. But Jason, after the second film, I could watch a dozen films about him, and we did. <laughs> yeah, I think Jerry. So Al, what you were saying is if like part three was the next one, and Jason came fully formed with his mask, right? Well, kind of, yeah, at least halfway through the film. Like, if people had, if people just watched Friday the 13th and then they watched Friday the 13th Part 3, you know, and they just jumped straight past this, like, how much that might affect. So I think, you know, Jerry made the point earlier that a lot of Part 3, they were more concerned with setting up the perfect 3D shot than they necessarily were with creating uh, a movie overall, like a coherent story and characters and whatnot. And I think that there's a pretty big dip in characters between part two and part three. Part of the reason I think this movie endures so much and why it's so loved by fans isn't just Jason, although that's a big part of it. I also think that it's Ginny. I think she is equally as important to the success of this movie as Jason is. And I also think that this movie does mimic the look of part one and the feel of part one in a way that it still feels like its own thing, but it does feel recognizable. Um, the setting is similar. They filmed it in just about the same spot, so it still looks like Friday the 13th part uh, one. I think when you get to part three and especially part five, they don't look as much like Friday the 13th movies to me anymore, at least what I love about the movies as much. And part of that is because they moved the shooting location to California and it doesn't really look like that campsite. So I don't think you would have that same, even though I really enjoy part three, I don't think you have that same level of success overall because I just think the characters aren't there and the look isn't there overall. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I think you're right. Uh, I think part two works. Um, if you didn't have the, the stupid flashbacks at the beginning that they become going to become reliant on for the rest of the series. Mm -hmm. Uh, but mm -hmm. if you remove those in the edit, then part two works completely on its own. All you mm -hmm. need is the story that they're going to have at the campfire. Like, you don't even yeah. really need to know who your opening character is necessarily. Yeah. Uh, I feel. No, I, I, I agree 100%. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I'm definitely on board with that. So, Al, before we go today, uh, you have a movie coming out, and it will be out by the time this is up. It would have been out for about a week. Um, tell us about Starfish. Do I have to? You don't have <laughs> you absolutely Jerry tell hey, us about you won't, I will you know that no. um, it's yeah it's my first feature film it's a very personal story to do with um, a friend of mine who passed away and we got to create this crazy weird independent movie that has a lot of strange imagery in it um, about a girl and a mixtape and the end of the world and yeah I feel very fortunate that it's getting released this week uh, via 1091 or the orchard because they just changed names um, just to confuse things and um yeah so it's on digital pretty much everywhere it's just finished a sort of mini theatrical thing and it's i think it's still doing some theatrical stuff up in canada as well okay. um but yeah starfishmixtape.com is where you can go to find out all the information um and before i was sorry oh, go ahead no no i was just gonna say that i i've made it very clear to our listeners i love this movie and i would recommend it to every single one of you video on demand digital look it up it's my favorite movie of the year so, so do it. i have not seen it yet so i'm not gonna blow any smoke up your ass right now al until i actually get to see it um i promise <laughs> never to jerry jerry what was it about this movie that like really spoke to you because you've tooted it ever since like we knew okay. al was coming on 
this is the deal with this movie. I didn't expect like you don't expect these these films. You know, as as a journalist, you know, you get sent so many movies. And uh, I said this during the Q and A that I did for the film without, like, I think a month ago or something like that. Uh, you get sent all these movies, and out of ten of them, maybe one of them's enjoyable, maybe two. You know, if you're lucky. Starfish caught me off. It caught me off guard because you know I was. I was going through some stuff at the time, like m- one of my best friends had recently passed away and I hadn't really addressed it. And the film is so good at allowing its viewer to kind of live vicariously through it. Like it it, it approaches grief and uh, kind of trauma and loss in such unique ways that I hadn't seen before. And it, it really allowed me to it really allowed me to kind of take a step back and really think about things and come to terms with what had happened in my own life through film and i think that's the most powerful thing about filmmaking it it was a film that even taking my personal kind of thing uh, out of it like it's very enjoyable i mean virginia gardner's great in the movie it has such a great soundtrack some of the visual stuff is just so great like it's it's I, I couldn't recommend it enough. I, I totally forgot that Al was on the episode right now. So with me gushing, he's probably mm-hmm. just probably just shaking his head right now. Yeah. I'm very uncomfortable when nice things are said. Sorry. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, it's in, all, good... in all honesty, the thing that I try and like whenever we did um, Q and A's, the one thing that I want to say when I have an audience to like say it to is just even if you don't watch Starfish, like do yeah, please like just look at independent films like please try mm-hmm. and support independent films and take risks with them and even if you hate a bunch of them just keep doing that because it's normally a very small investment from the audience and when you do watch it even if you don't like it go online and talk about it you don't have to like right. be really really mean you can be critically in a, crit- a critical and a constructive way but every i don't think people appreciate when you go to Rotten tomatoes and you leave a comment or you get a letterbox or you do a rating on imdb or one on itunes or something that legitimately changes everything for an independent film right uh, and every single voice does make a big difference with that. So just, yeah, please do that. that Great. Right. And Al, where can we hear more of you if we wanted to hear more of you? Who would want to hear more of me? Um, you have that wonderful British accent. It's beautiful. <laughs> My wife is from Cornwall. And I again, I like I said, it's Nurse Jenny. I make her dress up in a nurse's outfit. <laughs> take my temperature. <laughs> She tells me she's not in the habit of bringing strange Americans home every night before we go to bed. Um, you guys now all know a little bit too much about me. Uh, I was not going to say anything so you could just be left in me. <laughs> um, I am, I do have very quickly. I do want to say one last thing about Friday 13th part two, which is that everybody should go on to IMDb. Uh, find the guy who plays Scott, that handsome man I talked about who walks out from the bushes with a little slingshot. Uh, he's by an actor called Russell Todd. And I recommend everybody goes and checks out his pictures on IMDb because this man who's now uh, in his, you know, whatever, 60s or something, it is. It may be the most incredible, incredible photos I've ever seen of an actor on IMDb. They are ridiculous. Absolutely. He is so buff at his age. It's insane. (laughs) Doing this right now. (laughs) It's insane. Um. Yeah, I do a show called We Are Geeks, uh, which goes up every Friday where we tackle a different installment, kind of like what you guys are doing uh, in a franchise. Um, we've got like 15, I think, franchises that we've done so far. We're currently mm-hmm. doing the Conjuring universe. Um, yeah. And if you go on iTunes, you can find us. And, and yeah. Listen. Quickly, quickly, when is your new album coming out? Oh, man, you are too lovely. Um, I don't know. It's the honest truth. Like I, 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 every day I'm just tempted to just, we've been sitting on it for about two years. Uh, so yeah, my band's called Ghostlight and we've got an album called Dive Dark. Uh, there's a more popular Ghostlight right now, which is not us. We're the, we're the older Ghostlight. 
Um, and yeah, I keep just nearly putting it up on iTunes because I'm just like, fuck it, I'll just put it up. But then we've had a few record companies who are vaguely interested in doing something with it. So if you follow me on social medias, I'm Mr. L. White, then yeah, I will sadly okay. tell people when they can listen to things. All right. This dude is ripped. It's insane, isn't it? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> He's got the little underwear, the tidy whiteys peeking out of this picture. And you look at the posters for the movies he was in after Friday the 13th Part 2, and it's just crazy. Oh, my goodness. This is, yeah, where the, oh, Jesus. Hey, we never (laughs) even said, we never poured one out for my man, Crazy Ralph. Oh, yeah, I know. (sighs) Poor guy. Like, like, he's barely in the movie. He's just, like, spying on them, then he gets the thing around his neck. Miss Crazy Ralph. They tried doing a a Crazy Ralph-type character in Part 3, and... It wasn't the same. I really well, there's, crazy. There's the, uh, the graveyardsman guy in uh, the sixth one as well. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. when we get to part six, I will tell you one of my favorite moments in all of them. Uh, I love the edit there. The thing, I'm a giant fart head, and it just got so a bunch of kids yelling, yeah! Like, oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, listeners, we want to thank everybody for tuning in um, to our nearly two-hour discussion on Friday the 13th, part two. <laughs> Um, as it should be, man. As it should be. It's really, we could probably go longer, but I promised my daughter we would play uh, Monster of the Week, which is like a easier version of Dungeons and Dragon. Um, I, I do want to say... Aquaman after this. I, I do want to say, like, the response we've gotten to our our first three full weeks of being out in out there in the world has been incredible and i cannot thank of our listeners enough um i can't stress enough every retweet every message you guys send us um every time you like one of our things every time you share an episode um it means a lot to me that this is actually getting out there in its own way um we're so happy to bring these episodes to everybody and we want you guys to be a part of it um so please drop us a note at pod and the pendulum at gmail.com tell us about your favorite friday the 13th memories drop us a note at twitter at pod and pendulum um we will be back oh and please 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 if you can leave us a review on itunes or stitcher or anywhere you're getting your podcast like al said about movies it's the same way for us like every time you leave us a review we get a bunch of new downloads it does help people find us that may not have otherwise so we do appreciate everyone that's listened and has um you know chatted with us online like i look forward to this every single week um next be ready for next week definitely because we have someone from the series being involved first time on our show do we have larry zerner uh aka shelly from friday the 13th part two um he was kind enough to uh interview sit down for an interview for a little bit and we talked about whether or not elmo is a power bottom which i never thought i would ask in an interview but that's yeah so if you need to know the answer to that you'll find out next week so thank you for listening yes, have a fantastic you. week and hopefully there is no death curse on anyone listening oh.